Let's go. Let's do it. Oh my god. Okay. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another playoff episode. Cody, we've made it through most of the game twos, all of all of the game twos. Um, things are getting serious. We're we're turning the turning the corner to game three. We have to figure out which teams are still alive, which teams we're ready to uh, write obituaries for, get the fishing boat warmed up for the summer vacation. But first, first, I would like to give I would like to give the interwebs a receipt, a little, little receipt. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Is it, does that mean I, hot take is coming, Ben? I you well, sort of. I think so. Okay. It's a it's a stick your foot in the mouth moment. I like to give them the opportunity to really stick it to me. Of course, you know it's very difficult to predict the outcome of just one NBA basketball game when the teams are relatively close. But I have a feeling tonight, you know how Draymond Green is suspended for this game? Yeah. Oh, Ben. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I, a lot of people have written off the Warriors in this game. Are you one of these people? Yeah. I, you can call me people in this okay. case for sure. Okay. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm going to go to Hunchville. I just kind of feel like the Warriors are Hunchville. Yeah. An incredibly resilient team. Um, Steph Curry and Klay Thompson have risen to the occasion a number of times over the years when it feels like their backs are against the wall. I think home court makes a big difference in this series. The Kings are worse at home. The Warriors, excuse me, the Kings are worse on the road. The Warriors are better at home. And I think that's going to help the role players. I think that could help someone like Jordan Poole for one night, get a few shots going early, get a lead, build off of that crowd energy down to nothing. There's a lot of anger in the air over this suspension. We could talk about that in a second because I do have a a historical note that I want to add to the conversation that I haven't heard anyone mention. And then the big thing for the Warriors, besides obviously losing a great player, is they lose a big and they lack a lot of size. But this is where I kind of just trust Andrew Wiggins. I I just think he's got it in him to roll out of bed and grab grab 12 rebounds and block a shot or two and uh, play as many minutes as they need. And then that's, it's just one game. It's just one game. You win this game two one, you're right back in it. The Kings have not been in this position on the road in a hostile environment. So that's, that's my hunch, Phil. I'm setting that receipt out there for everyone to use in my face. <laughs> I wish you would have told me, Ben, I would have brought my marshmallows. This would have been a good some more time because I could have toasted up some good marshmallows with that take. That's, that's pretty spicy. If I do say so. He, Okay. Let me talk about it a little bit, though, because I think you have an interesting premise here. It sounds like you sort of have like a uh, they can kind of catch fire on offense. Right. And if Jordan Poole's rolling like Jordan Poole has a random 20, 30 point efficient game. Clay Thompson's resilient. They go to game six type of Oklahoma City comeback shooting spree. Maybe they can pull it out. So maybe offensively I can take your point. But man, like I think about Draymond Green playing defense during those last couple of games and just like the amount of times that Sabonis like rolls to the paint and Draymond is just there being huge and just like blocks it, like doesn't physically block him, but like keeps his body in front of him and then rotates out to the corner. I just don't think Andrew Wiggins can do that sort of thing. Like Andrew Wiggins is great in the sense that every time I see him, I'm like, I think somebody elongated his arms another couple of inches. Like just, he's just, he's just so lanky, but he doesn't have that strength that Draymond has. He doesn't have quite the awareness. So no, sure, if you're like, the Warriors are going to shoot like 70% true shooting this game. Yeah, maybe, but I I think it's kind of a long shot, Ben. It's just a hunch, Cody. It's just a hunch. Okay. Um, he's certainly not Draymond Green. Now, of course, the suspension 
is controversial. I think if anything, that's going to ex- energize the crowd a little bit more. The crowd influences the officiating. All it takes is a few early calls off the ball to get, dial down some of that physicality that we saw in the first two games. We, I, I'm sure you have opinions about this. We should talk about this. The physicality across the league in the first week of the playoffs has been off the charts. Mostly I love it because it allows defenders to compete, but but the game is so intense and a big difference between now and 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago is the offense has it in its head now that it's allowed to crush the defense with its elbows and its shoulders and uh, like a battering ram. So what's happening is as the game goes on, the off the defense is getting more physical and the offense is getting physical. And it almost feels like watching football players run into each other at full speed. There was a game, there was a play in the second half of the Nuggets Timberwolves game, and we got to talk about the second half of that game because that was, I mean, Cody, you want to talk about marshmallows? That was splendissimo. That was absolutely fantastic. Rudy Gobert gets the ball in the paint, he spins, and he smashes into the 270 pound uh, Nikola Jokic with an elbow, sending him flying 18 feet across the floor. No call. Not a defensive foul, not an offensive foul. So physicality across the league has been up. But finishing the thought on the Warriors here, um, I think the key thing in this series has been, well, I should say in game two specifically, was the Kings defense. They they were like a revelation to me in, in game two. And some of it was the officiating. Some of it was just allowing physicality both ways. And what that means, we saw it, for example, in the finals in 2019 with Toronto, where you get these small guards like Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet, and they can grab a little bit more off the ball. They can hold a little bit more off the ball. We all know everyone sets 70 moving screens a game, especially the Warriors. And so you get all this off-ball physical activity, and it makes it just a little bit harder to create the advantages you're used to. But man, I give Mike Brown and that staff and those players so much credit for the defensive game plan and the execution of that game plan. I don't know if I'll be able to spin off uh, an extra video on the More Thinking Basketball channel about this, but I got like, Cody, I must have like 40 clips from game two alone about the following things that the Kings did. Okay. Number one, Demonis Sabonis up at the level of the screen, hedging with the with the ball handler. So there's two guys on the ball temporarily, and then recovering. Sabonis is a relatively weak defender for a big man, but he can execute that. It was one of the reasons why I like the matchup for the Kings relative to their defensive strength. So his mobility in one specific direction and action. Now, the Warriors may have a counter. It's another reason why I kind of want to go to Hunchville on the Warriors in Game 3. Their coaching staff is so good at coming up with creative counters. But if you say to Sabonis, we're going in one direction toward the sideline, move quickly with the ball, and then we recover as a unit, they've done that well, okay? The second thing we always talk about with offenses like this is the point of attack guards. De'Aaron Fox... That guy has had some unbelievable defensive possessions in the first two games. And I'm not even sure he's been the best point of attack defender for the Kings. Davion Mitchell, when he's been out there, has had amazing minutes. And we can talk about a few other players, specifically Harrison Barnes, 
making a number of high IQ plays. I had a little note saying he's their mini Draymond because he's in the back line actually communicating and making good reads knowing this old team that he used to play for. Mike Brown, of course, being their their old assistant coach. And the totality of this for the Kings, especially in game two, was just, to me, playing defense significantly above their average quality defense against the rest of the league. I, I, I was floored. The thing about Fox that I think has really stood out about his defense is his ability to chase guys like Steph Curry around some of these actions. His ability to just not even like traditional pick dodging, but he's so fast that he can so almost fast. overshoot. He can overshoot the, the dribble handoff and just like darts right back and he's back in the play. It's unbelievable. And, off, and I don't and know how ball. many players can match that. Yeah. Yeah. And off ball, he's shooting the gap to your point. So, so he's not always chasing and trying to bend his body around the screen and stay connected. He's so quick and so athletic that he's comfortable becoming disconnected temporarily from the guy he's chasing, let's say Steph Curry, and shooting the gap and then recovering. Um, it's, 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 in a sense, I think it's a great defensive matchup for their talents. Whereas if they were playing another one of the sort of elite teams of the West no matter maybe how hard they tried, it would be hard for them to come up with a defensive game plan or execute based on the talent of the personnel as well as they did in that game too. That's what really stood out to me. I mean, didn't they shoot like 25% from three in game two and defeat the Warriors in a, in a close dogfight? It was really incredible. I'm pretty sure the Kings started, they started the game 0 for 11. Like they missed their first 11 three-pointers and ended up beating the Warriors. Like that's just, that's unheard of. Now I have a couple of questions for you because I know how it is to sit on a treasure trove of just clips and data and not really know if you're going to create something. So I'm going to let you dive into there and share, maybe pick out some for like a show and tell in your little brown bag and share it to the world. Uh, Sabonis, so you said, he's he, doing well in some of these hedging uh, actions, sort of these hedging defensive actions, but I also think they were doing a good job of experimenting when Sabonis wasn't necessarily involved. Do you think that Mike Brown was a lot more creative when Sabonis was not in the game, that he was able to do some other kinds of things, and what other sorts of actions or defenses did you see him playing when Sabonis wasn't involved? Well, well, they've tried um, a box and one, which, which is very interesting. Uh, I don't know if it was super successful, but they've certainly tried other creative stuff like that. And then, you know, Sabonis has not been amazing. It's just when you have, when you try to put him in more ball screen actions, they've basically had everything on lockdown as a five-man unit. And that's the, the beauty of NBA defense is you're only as good as your weakest link most of the time. And in this case, they say, uh, Demonis, you know exactly what you're doing. You're sliding with Steph Curry as he comes off the screen, temporarily have two on the ball, and you have all these guys behind the play who know how they're going to recover. And Cody, one of the things they've been able to do is cheat off of Draymond Green. And this is a really nice job by Mike Brown, in my opinion, of ignoring a non-shooter. And when Draymond and Looney play together, the spacing for the Warriors isn't great. Because the Kings are just saying, we can leave and overhelp and sink into the lane, and we don't really have to worry about these guys. And they're so quick that those two-on-ones that the Warriors create where people ignore Draymond, they swing the ball back to him, and then he can like screen and play a little two-on-one with Curry or Clay. The Kings' wing can then recover 
because they're because they're so quick. So I think they've done a really nice job of stuff like that uh, in this series. It's another reason why I think you know a little, a little hunch back to Hunchville for a second. I think the Warriors at home, if they, you know, just make a couple shots, things go well early. I think they can steal Game Three. The other thing that they're doing really well, and it goes back to the officiating, is they're jamming the guards off the ball. They're they're top locking is the technical term. They're turning and denying and really getting into the guards as they come around the screen. And you end up with these instances of um, Stan Van Gundy coined it top and drop where the screener's man drops back into the paint and the guard gets on top of the cutter. And all this stuff has just helped defend and muck up some of the incredible Warriors offensive actions that they have. And they've had a few total breakdowns. They've had a couple layups in the first two games. But I think for the most part, they've done an incredible job on that front defensively. I just, I I don't understand this, Ben. Like, we were talking about one of my, everyone's concerns, everyone's concerns about the Kings going to the playoffs was their defensive performance because they were allowing teams to score at times like 120 points per 100 possessions, right? And that's, you know, they were always outscoring that a little bit. Their, Their scoring pace was even better. What do you think has changed to make them so much more successful in the playoffs? Like, why weren't they able to squeeze out just a couple more points of value on defense during the regular season? Is it just too small of a sample? Is the Warriors a really good matchup? Like, what is going on so far? Oh, I I think it's a matchup. I think it's the matchup. And I think it is uh, Mike Brown getting time with the staff against his old team. And Mm -hmm. the personnel works for this situation. As, As I said, I think that's what it is. So if this were to be like the Suns or the Clippers or whoever else they're playing, you don't quite think that their defense would be as successful against them. Exactly, yeah. Okay, okay. We also need to discuss the Draymond Green suspension, which is very controversial. I have no idea how you feel about it. Um, You're you're making a face. Are you you one of the, what feels like 99% of people who are very upset that he was suspended? Uh... Ben, I don't know how to say this. I'm, I'm going to just try it. Like, the, I have thoughts that are bubbling up because I've been thinking about it a lot more. It feels like with a lot of these kinds of moments that appear on Twitter and everyone has an opinion, I feel like I just kind of, like, step away and become opinionless. Like, mm. it doesn't matter if I have an opinion about it. So I'm like, dream on suspended. Let's see how it's going to affect everything. I don't know. So if you were to be like, what's your opinion? Like, I don't know. Sure. When I was watching it, the stomp looked like a stomp to me. But like, if you're like, you're in charge of the NBA, would you suspend him? I, I don't know. I'm not in charge of the NBA. So I I don't necessarily have a strong feeling either way. But I felt in the moment that it looked pretty stompy. Fantastic. Perfect. Because I don't think anyone cares about our opinion on the matter. Um, no. But I do want to address the concept of historical precedent. I haven't really heard a lot of people talk about this. Joe Dumars in the NBA explicitly cited this, and there is precedent for this. This has happened before. Um, There's two big examples that I immediately thought of. I didn't do a lot of research of this. This is just off the top of my head. I, I immediately remember these two examples related to precedent. One of them is a subtle thing. The other thing is a more explicit kind of hooliganism, you know, constantly in the melee, you know, in, in, you're in, you're in the scruff, you're in this, you know, the Draymond situation, you got, uh, you have videos of you rolling around in people's legs 30 times a year. So I will address each one. The first one, 
Um, I don't remember if they explicitly talked about it in the suspension, but Kobe Bryant was suspended on two separate occasions for shooting and following through. And if you're watching us on YouTube, hey, YouTube, uh, thanks for watching. Um, He had this thing where he was taking jumpers, following through and with his off arm, swinging his off arm and hitting players in the face. And there was uh, an explicit sort of complaint and discussion about this. I don't remember if they issued a warning, but then he hit Manu Ginobili in the face at the end of a game. He might have been bloodied up or something. He was suspended for that. And it happened one more time with Marco Yarich. And then miraculously, Kobe stopped swinging his left arm violently and hitting people in the face for the rest of his career. So there, there is precedent in that sense in terms of saying, hey, this is happening. And the fact that it continues to happen means we're not giving you the benefit of the doubt because the Lakers and Kobe were saying, it's my shooting motion. It was a natural shooting motion that was hitting them in the follow through. And I think that relates to the green situation because a lot of the green situation seems to have to do with intent. You know, how much did he stomp him? Was it an accidental thing? Did his foot get cut up? Did he know he was there? You got the Zapruder experts on Twitter sharing. On this angle, you can tell that Draymond didn't know Sabonis was underneath him, which is nonsensical. Um, and, And then there's the other big one where precedent was mentioned in the suspension immediately, and that is Ron Artest. And Ron Artest, of course, had a history of incidents himself, And I think it was the 2012 playoffs against Oklahoma City. He elbowed James Harden, maybe after a made basket, he sort of like just just goes spaz and just throws this elbow coming back down the court, hits Harden in the side of the head. And he was suspended for seven games for that. And again, his um, history of having incidents and saying, we're not giving you the benefit of the doubt was explicitly mentioned in that suspension. So I just want to put that out there that it is not something new for the league, even in a playoff situation, um, to come along and say, when we have something that's happening like this, where intent is questionable, and, you know, we're not really sure what to make of the situation, we have taken into account a player's prior history. You know, as much as I'd love to go down the rabbit hole about consequentialism versus intentionalism right now, I'm, I'm going to move on a little bit, but I'm just going to seed the people with that little debate at the moment. But yeah, I think the the Meta World Peace play, I think he's he's like celebrating, like he makes a basket and he's going, yeah, but if you yeah. slow it down right before, I think he like pulls a little bit more on it. And it's like, eh, that seems a little sketchy. Didn't Draymond himself, wasn't he the target of like past behaviors with his like, do you remember when he would kick up? And he was like kicking dudes in the crotch like multiple times. Like, Do I wasn't remember that just that? a couple yeah. years ago? Yeah, I didn't forget yeah, that. I saw, yeah, Steven, Steven and Adams I think he remembers is maybe, it. Yeah. <laughs> the only guy that can get punched and just like not react to it whatsoever. So I feel like he's been, he's even experienced the like past behavior sort of thing before. Well, yeah. I mean, last year there was the debate about uh, in the Memphis series, the pulling the jersey and yanking down and whether that was part of the basketball act and all that. So so again, no one really cares about our opinion, but I understand, um, one, there is historical precedent for the league. I think that's important to clarify. And two, I understand the historical precedent in this case. And the last thing I'll say just personally on this is I think there's a code of conduct among athletes Um, when you're out there on the court or the field, I had this happen in my life. You try not to step on other people, right? That that's the code of conduct. And when you see 
Jimmy Butler get his ankle picked last night. When you see um, who else? Dylan Brooks got his ankle picked a couple weeks ago or earlier in the season. I can't remember the the entire play. Most of the time, if not all of the time, you try to avoid stepping on the the guy. You certainly try to avoid stepping on him and then putting all your weight on him and taking a step off of him. And the thing in my head is just like, what would you do if you're in practice and it was your teammate? Hmm. Would you would would you yeah. would you do that or not? I like that. I think that's a good way to view it. Like if this were to be in a different situation in a different court, like how would the people respond and what would you actually end up doing in the situation? That's good. That's good. Either way, um, let's move on because this this series I, hopefully continues to to cook. Uh, Nuggets Wolves. Did, I mean, did you did you watch this second half of this game too? This was spectacular. You know, I watched as much as I could. I can't, Ben, in in the middle of the country here. I just can't handle it. With these school start times, man, they're just way too early. I got to get my beauty rest. So I try and catch as much as I can just like recapping the game. So, you know, I saw a good chunk of it. And let me tell you, that third quarter, the Timberwolves just came storming back, just storming back. And that was an incredible performance from them. Anthony Edwards specifically mm. jumped out to me. Um he had one shot near the end of the third quarter on the baseline. Did you see this? Where he backs his man down, little spin fadeaway. Grant Hill even cites Michael Jordan after the shot. And someone yelled when Edward someone yelled. Edwards got into the spin, turned in the air, and someone yelled, like, woo, as he was doing it, like a little Ric Flair action. And I have rewatched that seven times because I think it was Anthony Edwards who made that sound <laughs> as he cooked whoever was guarding. He was like, he was so in the flow of the game and he knew he was going to make that shot that once he juked him with the little right shoulder back to the left shoulder, he's up in the air and he's like, I got this is money. I got this. Um, even if he didn't, that was just a great Ric Flair moment. So Anthony Edwards, his burst, his shot making, some of the defensive plays, uh, it just it was really cool to see. And he's still so young that that it's interesting to think about his ceiling, because in today's game, I feel like you need such a totality of skills or to be such a freak in one area. And I don't know if he has that. But boy, everything else for his age, his shot making, his moxie, his burst, his athleticism, his size, some of his defensive possessions. That was just a stunning performance. And then we have to get to the fourth quarter. So first of all, in the now uh, internally infamous under 25 draft that you and I participated in early. I think we were both probably a little too low on Anthony Edwards. I mean, I think this guy probably should have gone just a little bit higher and over some of these other guys. Cause when he's going like, Oh my good. Like, I think the thing that blows my mind, obviously I knew he was a good driver. We talked about this during the, the regular season where his first step, he just gets into the paint and he can explode and finish. But something that he seems to be really good at where he's, he's cooked Jokic a couple of times now is he's able to slip in just like an extra step, not in a sense that he's traveling, but he can like time out his dribble and just get like a choppy little step in there where he's able to like kind of throw you off so you don't know when to jump and contest it. And there's just multiple times that when he times it out, there's just nothing you can do because he just blows by you when you're kind of like getting ready to jump up and all of a sudden he's at the rim just finishing and when he's doing that 
and he catches fire and hits a couple of those threes, and he makes his weak side rotations and just ends up blocking you at the rim randomly. I, when he puts it all together, he's incredible, man, but he's a, uh, he's a the word of the day, volatile player that I forgot to uh, say that one episode. You, you, you have to be fair to us, Cody. Uh, the top 25, under 25 episode uh, it, it is, of course, a somewhat infamous episode, but uh, I mean, we were only doing that for how they were playing at that point in the season, we weren't drafting looking ahead. I think if we were drafting looking ahead, I know I personally would have had Anthony Edwards significantly higher on my board. And the interesting thing about him being so young, he struggled in the first couple months of the year. He's been much, much better after like December. And now we're in the playoffs, we're in these play-in games, and he's having more than one moment where he just kind of starts to bubble and, and percolate and take over the game and he can do it in different ways and it's really exciting. Like I said, what the ceiling means without being a great passer, having great feel or things like that, I don't know, but there's there's intrigue on both sides of the ball for someone who is already playing at an all-star level right now and he's just so young. What is he? Is he still 21? How this is I feel like we're having Jason Tatumism with Anthony Edwards. Like he's he's incredibly young. Um while you look that up, you mentioned the step. I think that's also part of the issue with Jokic as a rim protector is in those situations when he has to play two, when Edwards beats his man and he comes over, it's hard for him to really exert pressure on the ball and then recover. And so oftentimes he's looking to take the charge. It's another thing with the rules these days where you're not allowed to have arms. So I see more players like that that aren't shot blockers slide over into the paint and instead of like holding their arms out and staying in a defensive stance and then getting run over for a charge, they have to do the human sta- the human statue, right? And uh, Edwards is so good at taking an extra step around that. How old is he? Did you look it up? I did look it up. He is currently 21, which honestly, I thought he was 23. But when I think about <laughs> it, obviously, it's been in the year like two leagues, like three years at this point. It feels like he's been in the league longer. It's 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 incredible. Then we go to the fourth quarter in this game. So the Nuggets win game one. The Wolves struggle to score. In game two, first half, Nuggets play very well. Jokic and Murray are playing well. Michael Porter Jr. is making shots. The bench really had um, nice success in some of those minutes, especially in the in the first game as well. We got some messages about the Wolves' offensive rating saying, you know, in, in the last show, we should have talked more about how the Nuggets' defense turned into the 0-4 Pistons. And I was like, rewatched the game, and I was like, eh, the Nuggets' defense did not quite turn into the 0-4 Pistons. <laughs> it's a combination of the, the personnel and the system and the Timberwolves' offense. I think Denver's defense has been good. It's really exciting. It's really fun. We've talked about it a bunch earlier in the year. I actually think it has to be a little sharper at times. Uh, you know, think about the third third quarter last night, 40-point quarter for the Wolves. So I think it has to be a little sharper if they want to beat the best teams in the league. If they want to be able to beat the Wolves or maybe some other comparable team or a five seed, I think their their defense is there. But they have to clean up a little bit more on that end to be great. You know you know where they were great last night, Cody? Jamal Wait. Murray. Um, oh, my goodness. J- Jamal Murray, I think he had the Mickey Mouse hat on that he uh, that he picked up down in Florida. I was getting flashbacks. Were, were you uh, were you getting were you getting bubble Murray vibes? 
it was one of those things where it was getting it was getting kind of tense for the Nuggets. Like there was kind of a tension where it's like, oh my goodness, like the Timberwolves aren't being stopped. Like Carl Anthony Towns came alive all of a sudden. He had like two points in the first half. I don't know how many he scored in the third, but all of a sudden he's hitting threes. He's driving in. He's he's pure not pure wedding, but he's like going up and under around Jokic. And obviously, like we said, Anthony Edwards was incredible. And it felt like Murray was the one that was like, all right, I got to like evolve back into my my bubble time. So yeah, his his explosion offensively, I think, was really the key in, you know, keeping them alive during that stretch. Obviously, he's not going to go for 40 every night. He's not in the bubble anymore. Um, he's not, he's not going to be hitting fadeaway threes all the time and shooting 80% from the floor. But if Murray plays at, let's say, a strong all-star level, he really is in the flow um, you know, looking, looking great, looking strong, making shots all over, good passes, good decision making, two man game with Jokic. Where do you put the Nuggets right now among contenders? Wow, I think that's really tough because when you say contenders, there's like the East contenders, and then there's the West contenders. We'll start with the West. So, start with the West. How do you feel about the them from what you've seen coming out of the West? If he Again, I don't literally mean 40 points, but if he is playing like he played last night with everything clicking. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to like vamp while I talk through something right now, so just just go with me on this ride. Go on this magic carpet ride with me, Ben, because the bench occasionally for the Nuggets, they really show out because I think the key to them really making the the comeback and winning ultimately yesterday was the beginning of that fourth quarter. Both Jokic and Murray were on the bench and I think Towns was on the court for the Wolves and the the Nuggets start with an 8-0 run, right? And they ultimately changed from like a, a two-point deficit and they took the lead by two points and one of them was like Michael Porter Jr. hit a huge and one three and I think that was a big momentum changer. So the bench has the capacity to have these moments where you can keep them alive for just a couple of minutes. And if they're rolling and Jamal Murray's doing his thing and I'm looking at everybody else in the West, oh man, Ben, I I don't know. Okay, I don't know what to make of the whole Kawhi Leonard thing because apparently Kawhi Leonard is out tonight. And is- if Kawhi Leonard isn't going to be like consistently playing, I, I don't know what to think of the Clippers. The Suns then are obviously going to move on to the second round if Kawhi's not playing. Uh, John Morant is out, so obviously the Grizzlies are probably the favorites in the entire league with Tyus Jones leading them. <laughs> um, man, I really don't know. I New listeners are going to be so confused by that Tyus Jones reference. Um, they don't know about your, your love of Tyus Jones and the running joke about the jawless Grizzlies around uh, here who are 33 ben? and 17 I, I didn't tell any jokes there's nothing that people have to get about an inside joke it's just an objective fact that the grizzlies are incredible and that tyus jones rules as a backup actual starting point guard so um i don't know wherever you put them i still think they would be flirting with whatever the the top tier is but i just don't think anyone in the west has really separated themselves to be like a main contender probably the kings more than any other team that i've seen in the west uh but wherever the nuggets are they're probably near the top for me well, you went full Rachel Dratz there, uh, the Debbie Downer of the of the day from Cody Hodek, ladies and gentlemen, uh, bringing up the Kawhi <laughs> Leonard situation. Um, it's true. It's true. We have reports, certainly by the time everyone in the world is listening to this, uh, that he is not playing in game three. This one is tough because even though it's a home game, so the same situation that I took everyone to Hunch- Hunchville earlier on uh, for the Warriors... The, the, they're just out of players. The Clippers, the Clippers are already down Paul George. It felt like watching 
an 11 seed make a run in March Madness or something where they have the one NBA player and then all these other guys around them and the coach is making moves and he's going zone and boxing one and he's putting he's putting the point guard on the other team's center and he's doing whatever he can. And of course, the Clippers won game one. Kawhi is a scoring machine in the playoffs. He played with so much tempo and control in the first two games. They were up double digits in the first half of game two. And then the Suns shot uh, between Chris Paul, Devin Booker, and DeAndre Ayton. Am I forgetting anyone? Kevin Durant plays on that team as well. Yes, yes. They're big four. They shot 66% from mid-range in that game. They They were like 25 of 39 or something from mid-range. Torrey Craig hit five threes. It was still a very competitive game. It was still a very scrappy, competitive game. Russell Westbrook, I love... Cody, I mean, you want to be Debbie Downer? I got to go in the other direction. I love this Russell Westbrook. This version of Russell Westbrook with the with the defense and the rear view pursuit and blocking shots and flying all over the court. I mean, this feels like... Remember how Grant Hill reinvented himself in Phoenix as a 3 and D player yeah. after being a superstar. There's a there's a there's a tint of that where Westbrook can almost go back to being like UCLA Westbrook, like the prospect he was when he came out. He had this explosive tournament. Um, and even in the Final Four in the game against Memphis, where Memphis had a bunch of athletes at the time flying around the court, Westbrook was the guy who really looked like, especially defensively, that he could hold his own for all these years later to come back to that and play this style. Um, if he could potentially do a full transformation and just become like a defensive hawk, motor, rebounding, uh, uh, and then, of course, he can still put pressure on the rim in space, uh, it's it's a lot of fun. I don't I don't really understand it. Like, this is... A- <laughs> This is literally the same player that played for the Lakers earlier this year where we, we were almost mocking his performance for them. And I don't know if it's like, I don't know if it's under the shadow of LeBron and you're just not handling as much. I don't know if it's the Lakers just didn't have the spacing that the Clippers had. I don't know if it's it's Tyron Lue's offensive schemes and the way that he's able to open up the court for him. But Westbrook's been, yeah, he's been really fun to watch. Like, again, we're talking about motor and guys that maybe like you could have referenced in our motor conversation. He's all over the court. Right. And he's been super important to the way that they're playing, especially at, I'm really excited to see what happens with Westbrook when when Kawhi is down, because uh, if he was taking advantage of Paul George being out of the lineup, I, I cannot wait to see what Westbrook's going to cook up being like, all right, it is my time. Because, Ben, if I were to make a list of the top five guys that would be most excited about both of his superstar teammates being out and just being like, it's me, it's go time. Russell Westbrook's right, right there. Malik Monk is right there. I don't know who else. That's your that's your whole list. That's your top five. But this takes away from the new old Westbrook. When I'm dubbing UCLA Westbrook, he would. You're you're saying he would be leaning back into the on ball offense, and uh, I want I want to see him like a like a short Jared Vanderbilt out there rebounding and sure. guarding everyone, playing defense everywhere, diming up teammates, getting out in transition. So I I don't know this one. This one feels really tough. All I can do is hope that Kawhi comes back for game four and it's just a temporary thing. 
And I think, you know, you talk about the defense thing. Obviously, they're going to miss Kawhi a ton on offense because he's just he just makes offense out of nowhere. I've been really impressed with Kawhi defensively. There's been a couple times like I think his nail defense has been incredible for a couple of ways. There were like like two plays within a couple minute span where Devin Booker like tries to drive and Kawhi's just like, wow, like hands there. Like all of a sudden he just steals it. I, I Obviously, he gets it's the glove, not the glove. Oh, my God, the claw. Sorry, I have my I have my my hand nicknames mixed What's up right now. On? He's not the gauntlet. He's not the glove. He's the claw, and he just clawed Devin Booker a couple times. His his rim protection, I think, has been good in the sense that he can like step up pretty high, and he's so big and just like so disruptive with his hands that no one wants to like really attack him there. But Ben, defensively, and we're gonna go to the other side of that game, that matchup. I was really impressed with DeAndre Ayton's defense. I don't know about you, but the way that he was able to just like fluidly go around the court, the way that 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 uh, that they were able to play defense on Kawhi, especially where they just shut down the baseline, where they were funneling him baseline, and DeAndre Ayton, wherever he was, would just like hustle down and shut him down there. I, I was just, I was impressed with him. This is the DeAndre Ayton I like to see, the guy that can kind of play any sort of defensive scheme. And if he can keep up like this, I'm going to really like Phoenix's chances with the offensive ecosystem around him. Well, I think a lot of that, though, was double teaming and making the decision to put more bodies on Kawhi, double him. And then if Aiton is on Zubots, this is the double-edged sword that some of these teams play with. As important as Zoo has been for the Clippers at times this year and in the first two games of this series on both ends of the court, if you are a traditional drop center in today's NBA, you often lack spacing. We'll get to that in a second with the Knicks and Cavs series. And then um, on defense, the teams can ignore you because of that, right? So in this case, Aiton roams off of Zubats. They double Kawhi. Um, and then this the funneling that you're picking up is Aiton gets to be the presence at the rim that says, ah, I got I to pass out of this ultimately. And it might lead to a turnover. It might lead to, uh, if you have good rotations, no shot or something like that. But I think, I think certainly in game two, especially, they did a pretty good job of sending more bodies at Leonard and slowing him down. It's a fun little, it's a fun little chess matches going on with who's guarding Durant, Westbrook guarding Durant, showing different looks. Zubots has often guarded the small forward. So if it was Torrey Craig, they put Torrey Craig in the corner where it's the closest shot and easiest shot for him. They put Zubots on him so he can be the low man and roam. And if you have to switch the pick and roll, he can come over and help. All that fun stuff that Boston did with Rob Williams last year. There's a lot of cool little wrinkles going on in this series. I'm telling you, you you get like an NBA playoff vibe plus a March Madness upset vibe. Let's move on because I I just I'm really bummed out about this Kawhi Leonard news. You know what doesn't bum me out? What? The Knicks playing a playoff game in Madison Square Garden. And I Oh man, when's yeah, you're right. What was the last time? Was that the the Oh, a couple of years ago. Duh. Uh, Nineteen seventy three. That was the last yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the glorious Knicks of Red Holtzman uh hanging the banners of nineteen seventy three. I think Reggie Miller played some playoff games there in the nineties. I don't I don't fully remember. Um it's gotta be Grimes time, Cody. Grimes time. Okay, so here's the thing. This is one of those games that game two, when I was watching it, I was watching it pretty closely at first, and then all of a sudden it was kind of a 20-point lead, and I'm like, all right, it's halftime. I'm going to go shower, and I came back up, and I watched a different game. So can you tell me what 
what specifically looked different to you between game one and game two that a lot because we were pretty low on the Cavs. Like after game one, I was very much like, man, this Cavs team, that that three spot and their inability to space the floor is going to be an issue. I don't know where they're going to be able to drum up offense. Ben, they, they brought the offense. So what was different between game one and game two? Oh, there were some really nice little adjustments, I thought, from J.B. Bickerstaff going from game one to game two in this one. First of all, Karis LeVert was the answer for the small forward position. And Jetty Osmond had a few good minutes as well. I don't want to oversimplify it, but they got way better minutes in this game than they did in game one from that position. And a lot of that was just saying like, Karis, you're going to go out there. He played 18 minutes in game one. Cody, he played 40 minutes in game two because he was logging a lot at the small forward. He didn't even start the game. So to put that in perspective, he basically came in and played almost the entire game, went four for nine from downtown. I don't know which is more important to to embody our friend Seth Partnow at The Athletic, the four or the nine, because that guy will take shots and he will make shots, finished with 24 points. Um, I thought he played really well and he was a key to getting some spacing on the offense. So one, going with a small lineup, which they didn't do a ton, but right away in the first half, the game got busted open a little bit when they played that small lineup. And the small lineup for Cleveland, just to be clear, is one of the twin towers on the bench. So you can either have Mobley or Jared Allen at center. And then in their case, typically Garland, Mitchell in the backcourt, Karis, Levert, and one other wing, someone like Jetty Osman, and playing that lineup with the one big really opens up the spacing right away for them on offense. So you get more driving angles that you normally get with spacing. It's all it's all the great modern benefits of spacing, Cody. I feel like an infomercial for Pace and Space or something. Um, you get all the benefits of the driving lane, and then you also get the benefits of when you kick it out, there's no longer a guy you can cheat or leave. So before with the with the twin towers even if they put Mobley in the corner and this goes back to the way the Knicks defended it in the regular season they were not afraid to leave Mobley as a shooter so they can come over and cheat and get an extra body in the lane you switch to that one big lineup and and Mobley or Jared Allen is the screener on the ball now it's much harder to leave any of those guys and that was immediately apparent so that was one um, the second one also relates to Levert, but I relates to Levert, but I think it was an entire scheme concept. Full court pressure on Jalen Brunson, getting up into him earlier in the backcourt and up into him higher in the half court. And the reason I thought this was so huge, there might not be a better player in the NBA at rejecting screens than Jalen Brunson. What do we mean by rejecting screens? Someone sets the screen, it's the pick and roll, and instead of accepting the screen and using it and going in that direction, you cross back over at the last second and you go in the other direction. He's a master of attacking the screener defender while he's he's like attacking two defenders at once. He's behind the play, he's setting up, he's dancing, and he can feel which way the defenders are leaning and go in the other direction. If you get ball pressure up into him, he can't set up his moves like that. So that was a big part of what they did to Brunson that was actually subtle. The non-subtle part that they talked about a lot on the telecast was, now I'm going to mix in some blitzes. I'm going to mix in some hedging. I'm going to put two on Jalen when he comes off the pick and roll traditionally. And 
as crafty as that guy is as a scorer and shooter, as great as he has been this season, he's not a great playmaker and he's small. You know, he doesn't have a lot of size. So he can't gut that coverage like a bigger playmaker or like a Nikola Jokic or something like that. And so his default tendency as a playmaker is often to kick it quickly one pass away. The Knicks don't get a great advantage. The defense can recover. And I thought that was uh, a huge part of what they did. Last adjustment I liked actually attacks Jalen Brunson on defense. And it's small, small pick and roll. So we talked about how even with the big lineup, the Cavs only have two shooters. One guy with the ball, Garland or Mitchell, and the other all-star guard. The small, small pick and roll puts them together. And so it brings Brunson into the action. And then you have to decide, like, if you're going to do the hedge move and you're going to quickly put Brunson on the ball, then you leave Darius Garland wide open for three. They ran that a couple times. It created a lot of problems. So it's just a bunch of little nice things that J.B. Bickerstaff did. Turns the tide of the series. I think there are things the Knicks can do. Getting back home to Madison Square Garden with that environment that I can't wait for. I'm so jazzed up. I'm running out of breath thinking about it. Hopefully helps the role players. Hopefully helps Obi Toppin. Quentin Grimes and Emmanuel quickly because they have to have good games on the second side uh, for the Knicks to really probably turn turn this back around and, and take a 2-1 lead. I want to talk about the Cavs lineup differences this time because well, first of all, Ben, the the shock I had when I look up and I see Danny Green checking into the game for the Cavaliers and I'm like... <laughs> aren't you buried on the bench in Memphis right now? Like, when did you make it to Cleveland? Like, genuinely, I did not know he played for the Cavaliers. And this guy plays for 20 minutes, but that means that Isaac Okoro, Ben, he played three minutes this game. He started the game, played three minutes. Do you think, I don't know, do you think that Isaac Okoro just doesn't really have a role in this series? Are we going to, is he going to be like spot starting at this point to not mess it up? Like, what's going to happen with that with that position during this next game? Do you mean Isaac Apollo or Isaac Okuru or Isaac Oroku? I mean, I don't know if you caught that. He was called many different names on the telecast. Uh, I, yeah, I imagine you could go either way on this where you could have him start game three again for whatever reason the staff wants him there, defense, they want to continue going forward and get another look at it. Or it's the kind of thing where they've just decided... He's better being down the rotation in that spot. They're going to fill those minutes elsewhere. And so you might see him get some spot minutes off the bench. But essentially, he's moved to the edge of the rotation for small forwards slash small ball power forwards. And that's the only time you're going to see him. I I think it could go either way. We'll we'll have to see what happens at the start of game three. Ben, I don't mean to come straight for your heart here, right? I'm doing this. I'm doing this out of compassion. I no, just not. I want you to to help me nope. out, Ben. I'm just I'm genuinely interested as an objective observer, Ben. Purely objective here. Uh, why is Quentin Grimes not making any shots? What what's going on? What's going on with the Quentin Grimes experience? They okay. I think one of the things the Knicks need to realize if they're going to see some of these coverages is they need to they need to be better about exploiting the second side. Meaning when the ball gets skipped from the strong side to the weak side. One, the passes need to be better. The spacing needs to be there. And that's where Quentin Grimes excels. So he's got to get that early in a position where he can attack the closeout downhill 
or it's got to be open enough for him to hit that wing three or the extra pass to the corner for the corner three. I don't think, especially in game two, we saw a lot of that. So if you think about quitting time, Cody, it's uh, attacking closeouts. It's finishing threes in those situations on extra passes. It's getting downhill and making extra passes when you attack closeouts. And it's getting out in transition. And I just don't think New York had too many of those opportunities. And also, young guys playing their first playoff games on the road. Uh, I am never really surprised by struggles. I think you got to get back home. Same thing with Quickly. He didn't have a great experience there in in game two. Uh, One of those guys, I think, really has to pop and have a have a classic Madison Square Garden experience game for them uh, if, if they're, if they're going to move forward. Because, frankly, there are some things you can do to help Brunson against some of the counters we just saw. They're subtle. I expect we might see a few of them from the Knicks. So, therefore, Brunson can have a better game. But I don't think this series, especially with Julius Randle, who did not look great in Game 2, Cody, he did not look like he was moving super well throughout the entire game. And I thought it hindered some of his performance, especially on offense. But, I mean, he's going up against Evan Mobley. He's going up against the Twin Towers sometimes. He's got to feel comfortable with that shot. It's got to be a Randall 4 for 11 from downtown kind of game if he's going to shoot a lot of threes and get the space to shoot those threes in situations. Or he's got to be able to get to the basket and finish as he normally does. If he can't do that, um, you're going to need a lot of heavy lifting from those other guys. Okay, so at the beginning of the series, and even after game one, you were definitely a Knicks guy here. You're like, I, I believe in the Knicks. I think they look really good, blah, 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 blah. How do you feel about that now? Has your opinion on this series changed? Have you seen some things from the Cavs that have, have flipped your opinion on them a bit? Or are you still still feeling pretty confident in the Knicks pulling out this series? I don't know if my opinion of this series has changed since, since a day before the series, a day after game one, a day after game two. It's been It's been pretty like... This is this was the series I think I described as closest to a coin flip. And I think you can see all these reasons. If something critical from an X's and O's standpoint were to happen in game three, and I didn't think one of the teams had a counter, um, then I might start to feel differently. Sometimes you can get all the way to game four with a series like this and feel differently. But I'm just, I think we're on a seesaw right now. I just think we're on a, a, a knife's edge. And I would not be surprised at all by a split in Madison Square Garden. And and frankly, it's one of those series where even if one of the... Well, if the Cavs won both games, that would be three in a row. And coming back home, that would be a lot. But if the Knicks were to take both games at home, I would not be surprised if it got pushed all the way back to seven either. It's still, as of two games in, and as of seeing a competitive regular season game recently between the teams, they still look pretty pretty close to me. Do you have any other thoughts there? Or is there a, another series you want to jump to? Well, I mean, look, I think we've had 17 episodes in a row that have gone over an hour. The average runtime might be like an hour and 15 minutes. So my goal is to get us out of here on time. Did we talk about the next Nets and the 76ers and the double teams of Joel Embiid last time? Did we get to that? I can't even remember. I don't think we did, but do you mean the fact that that the Nets are basically just running the shift defense that you outlined in the in the earlier thinking basketball video? Is that what you're talking about? That's exactly what I'm talking about. I I swear I feel like we had this entire conversation in the earlier podcast this week after game one. But if you say we didn't, I trust you. 
I'm pretty sure we didn't. I really don't think we talked about the, the 76ers or Nets. Because I okay. thought, here's, here's why I know that. Because after the last episode, in my mind, I'm like, wow, we completely avoided talking about both Jokic and Embiid that episode. So that's why I'm thinking that. We do. We have a little board behind us that it's like X number of days since an accident. We try to go as long as possible without talking about those two players. So here's the thing. The Nets are basically using that principle that we talked about in the video. It's incredibly exciting because they have five very versatile defenders. And so the concept is we switch wherever. If we end up with a smaller player on Embiid, it doesn't matter because we're bringing a double anyway. And then when you do the shift, when you everyone has their rotations and they peel off and they reorganize and they rotate to the next guy in front of them, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't matter where we end up because we're very versatile. We're all similar defenders. You know, we don't really care if a smaller guy ends up back on Embiid because we'll just run the same thing again. It's been fascinating to watch, Cody, because Embiid, as much as he's improved as a passer, he still just doesn't have that gene and never will, I don't think, where you can just like rip a defense apart anticipating how they're going to double you. It's not the easiest thing especially when the spacing isn't great, which sometimes can happen with Philadelphia. So the interesting thing to me, and especially in game two, but even in game one, they've been running this concept defensively where they double him and then shift around. And I think it's really prevented the 76ers from getting good shots a lot of the time. You got to credit players like James Harden and Tyrese Maxey, who at different times individually in game one and game two, just did a phenomenal job attacking on the reset or attacking on a very small advantage as the as the uh, the Nets recovered and saying, oh, I'm going to take this little window in the closeout, knife in and finish. Or in Harden's case, I think Harden had a back-to-back possession in the first half of game one where they ran the double on Embiid. It went nowhere. It swung to him. He hit a step back three. Um, they, they did it again. He gets it. He attacks downhill. He makes a nice pass. So the Sixers were still able to have productive offense in the series. I think their offensive rating off the top of my head is very good in the first two games, but it's really interesting because I actually think shot quality wise, the Nets tactics here have diminished the quality of the looks for the Sixers and they've done a good job. the, The rub in this series, as we talked about uh, in, in our playoff preview is I just don't think they have any firepower on offense. So it's hard to consistently win playoff games when you're like, guys, it would be awesome if we could get a 110 or 115 offensive rating tonight. And you can only, you just can't rely on that more than every other game. And something that I really like about the way that the Nets are sending that double team at Embiid, it seems like they're trying to send it at his backside. Like he's kind of facing this way and the double team's coming from this way, which leaves the weak side corner open, right? That's the kind of pass that they're trying to force him to make. And you can see it early on in game two where that that pass is open for a second and Embiid turns when the double's coming and you can see he sees it but he doesn't quite make it fast enough. I don't remember if it takes him a beat to make the pass or if he doesn't make the pass at all, but I remember seeing that and being like, ah, he's going to be processing that. Later on, I started realizing that he was making that pass a lot quicker. Like once he got it in, once it was like programmed into him, he was starting to make it quicker. But I think that goes along with the like, uh, it's not quite ingrained in him. Like he can learn on the fly and he's able to make some of these passes, but he's not tearing apart the uh, the, the defense in that way. But yeah, Tyrese Maxey. Ben, I mean, I think he's been he's been really incredible 
And like you said, he just gets a little bit of an advantage. And there was one time specifically, I'm thinking of Mikhail Bridges is on him. And I think someone comes up, it might be Niang comes up and sets, just ghosts the screen just a little bit. And Bridges shifts just the slightest little bit of a shift. Maxi's off to the races. He's going downhill. Bridges is trying to chase him down. Boom. He's at the rim. So I've been really impressed with his ability to kind of play off the way that they're attacking Embiid. Uh, But I think another thing that's really key to all of this is that the Nets, I feel like the way that their defenders are built and the way that they play, they're like set up perfectly to defend James Harden. Like current James Harden, this is kind of exactly the sort of roster you would want to throw at him. And I think that's contributing to him really not having his best series. He looks a little bit slower than when we were joking about him being clearly an all-star level player. He's still an all-star level player, but uh, he, he just seems a step slow right now for them. So uh, I, I just really want to throw it to, to give it to, to hand it to, whatever verb you want to the Nets for the, the way they've been able to defend so far this series. I, I think uh, Maxi was really the key to getting them a win. I don't know if they would have won that game without his play. He was 6 of 13 from downtown, 33 points in 40 minutes. They were plus 17 with him on the court, which was a team high for Philadelphia. But to your point, I think it was in game one, there was a moment where Embiid, who wants to be patient, right? That's the difference. If you're a savant, you're anticipating, you have the court mapped, you see it before anyone else does. If you're a good passer, you kind of have a little bit of a read, you might have a hunch, you're quick with your reaction. Embiid is probably in that next layer where if you give it to him, he can make the pass, he can make openings, but he's trying to be patient and trying to understand, okay, how's this going to work? I don't need to rush. I'm bigger than everyone. And that has not led to amazing shots out of this tactic. But the other thing is, and I think it was in game one, as I said, you get a setup where the first time you see the look, it kind of goes nowhere. Maybe there's a turnover. The second time in the second half, he saw a similar look. He ball faked to see what would happen, knowing that they're going to try to rotate. And then that created the opening. That kind of manipulation is something that, you know, you could hurt this tactic with. I don't know if we'll see more of that because in game two, Cody, you mentioned how they doubled him. They've actually varied it a ton. It's really hard to pick up what the rules are or if there are any rules because sometimes the double is instant. Sometimes the double is after a beat. And sometimes the double is only when he puts it on the floor and and starts to dribble. And because of the principles of the shift, that means you can double from two different spots. You can double from his right side. You can double from his left side. If he's in the middle of the floor, it might be a little harder. So the players want to go early. But there are situations where two nets are doubling at the same time. So you do know that some of this is on the fly and you're kind of reading and reacting for the defense, whatever the rules are. And when one guy goes and doubles, the other three guys bend and flow and rotate to the soft spots. Uh, it's, been, it's been really cool to watch, especially after doing that video. And in game two, I was a huge contributor to Embiid having eight turnovers. He ended up with seven assists because of everything we're talking about. You're making him be a playmaker, but he also had eight turnovers. So it's really, really cool stuff. And then it's successful, but I don't, I just don't think it's going to be nearly enough. All right. Did we get out of here in under an hour? We did not. Uh, maybe we do oh, hold on. Yes. I think we're, we're cutting it close. Let me get this outro read thinking basketball. 
Uh, you can support us, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Uh, Cody's, Cody's giving me the shaking head because I'm blowing the outro, trying to get us out of here in under an hour. Um, that is the best way to support us. We have our live Q&A coming up at the end of the month, which is a lot of fun for our deluxe members. Hope you're enjoying the playoffs. And as always, thanks for listening to this one. And I hope you're having a great day. <laughs>